All right, guys, so we're, um, we're jumping back into the book of Job. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, but I had originally intended to preach through verses 1 through 13, but I decided to break it up uh, according to this passage here, verses 11 to 13, because I think tonight's passage really deserves its own message. Um, and the reason why is because tonight's passage is a passage on how to comfort uh, those who suffer. Okay, And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And it shouldn't be too much of a challenge. We give you guys uh, journaling Bibles. Uh, but Job chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 13. And uh, this is what the author of Job writes in verses 11 to 13. He says this, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, they made an appointment together to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is God's word. What does it mean to be there for someone? I want you guys to consider that question. What does it mean to be there for someone? And I want you guys to imagine that you have a good friend uh, who just told you that their mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor. She isn't sure if the brain tumor is cancerous or not. What do you do? How do you comfort them? What do you even say? Imagine another, another scenario where your friend courageously tells you that they have been struggling with depression, that it has been a lifelong dark battle with self-harm, self-hatred, and even self-loathing. They don't feel like getting out of bed. They have no motivation to do anything at all. You want to help, but you have no idea how to help. What do you do? Imagine a more mundane scenario where a friend tells you that they just had a really bad day at school. Uh, nothing was going your friend's way at all. They didn't do very well on a test. A bird pooped on them. They dropped their lunch. It was a rough day. What do you do? Send them a bunch of memes? Make them laugh to cheer them up? What do you say? And there are many other scenarios I'm sure you've encountered either in your own life or in someone else's. But tonight, I want us to consider the question again, what does it mean to be there for someone? When you hear tragedy, suffering, and hardship, what is your gut instinct in response? What would you do? Now tonight, our attention returns again to a man named Job who has gone through and suffered the greatest tragedy and suffering in his life. It is a suffering and a tragedy that is so total that nothing around him or in him has been left untouched and unscathed. It was a suffering so total that it not only touched his surroundings, but also his very own body. And if you'll remember, Job lost everything. He lost his possessions, his camels, but to lose his camels is, is nothing compared to losing his servants. And, to, and losing his servants is small compared to losing his children. And to lose his children is yet a different layer of pain and sorrow than to lose himself. The Job that we see tonight in our passage is a Job that is unrecognizable from the Job that was first introduced to us in the opening verses of Job chapter 1. And again, what makes Job unique isn't that his suffering is extraordinary, though it is, but that his experience of suffering is really ubiquitous. 
Job's experience of suffering can be found anywhere at school, in your own home, in the grocery store, even on the streets. And the reason why this passage, I think, is relevant for us is because the experience of suffering and tragedy is such a common, everyday experience. You have to turn your eye blind to it, to not see it. Either you will experience it, or people close to you will experience it. And as Christians called to bear witness to the God of all comfort, the question again is, what does it mean to be there for someone? How, how we care for others in the midst of their tragedy and suffering will either speak much of or speak little of the God of all comfort. How we care for others is a window into how we have received care, God's care for us. That is ultimately what is at stake. And so if you knew someone like Job, what would you do? And what would you say? What we see in our passage tonight is how Job's friends care for their suffering friend. And though they will fail in loving Job later on in this book, and actually not just later on in this book, literally just like verses later, the only time that they succeed in loving Job is actually here in these three verses. The only time. And that's what makes these verses actually really important for us. How can we be there for those who suffer? And so Job's friends demonstrate two ways to be there for those who suffer. The first way is the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence. Take a look at verse 11 again. Now when Job's friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanites, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now the only time, again, like I mentioned, that Job's friends get it right in this book at all is when their mouths are closed. When their care is communicated not by their neat, tidy, theological answers, but by their immediate action. The text simply tells us that when Job's three friends heard of the disaster and tragedy that fell upon Job, they did two things. They left their homes and they decided to meet Job in his suffering. And to understand why this particular care is so important, we have to back up and understand who Job's three friends were and remember again who Job was. If you remember the opening verses of Job chapter 1, we aren't introduced to Job nobody, but Job somebody, right? And when his kingdom fell, it was news that spread across the ancient world. And Job's three friends were a representative of Job's global influence. Job's three friends were from all over the world. Verse 11 tells us that Job's three friends came each from his own place. What place was that? Well, they came from three distinct places surrounding areas of the ancient Near East. They're all irrelevant to us, but very relevant for Job. We're not going to do a word study of their names or of these places, but what's important is that their names all have roots of regal significance. And so these three friends, in addition to Job, were Job-level guys. They were men of significance. These guys weren't random homies from high school. They came from their own places of international renown. They were men of influence, significance, knowledge, and most of all, wisdom. And these three friends represented the best of international wisdom had to offer. And because of who they were, their influence, their wisdom, they came to see Job. And as the wisest men of their time, aren't you curious what sort of wisdom they seek to offer Job in his greatest moment of need? 
as the wisest men of their time, aren't you curious, just a little bit, what kind of knowledge that they drop on Job? Aren't you curious to see what you can learn from these guys? For example, when you find yourself in need of help and direction, where do you usually turn to? It's usually a friend, maybe your parents, but definitely Pastor Tim. Why? Because these figures represent the best, the best of what we hope biblical wisdom can offer, right? And when we, hope to, when we come to, to, to these figures, we expect solutions and answers. And so what sort of wise comfort do we see in these three men? For just these three verses, brief verses, in this quiet respite, these three wise men don't drop any knowledge or wisdom. Does that surprise you? From the three wisest men in their geographical diversity, we expect something more, but we don't. In fact, they're just there. In their wisdom, they simply came to Job in solidarity. That before they speak to Job, they are with Job. Job's three friends will prove to be fools later on, but the wisest, wisest thing that they do in this entire book is to give Job their presence. Job's friends will get it all wrong later on, and he, only here, and here only, they get it right. The combined resources of the wisdom of the world in Job's three friends is distilled in the gift of presence and solidarity. The best of wisdom, in other words, tells us to simply be there with those who suffer. If you take a look again at verse 11, you'll notice that it says they showed him sympathy and comforted him. The Hebrew word for sympathy is really a Hebrew idiom for shaking the head. And shaking the head was a symbol of grief shared in solidarity. In fact, take a look at verse 12. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. In other words, they entered into Job's experience of suffering. They acted as if the evil that had fallen upon Job had fallen upon them as well. But why? As the best representatives of human wisdom, why is presence and solidarity the appropriate response to suffering? Couldn't they offer something more? Well, it's because anyone who has suffered or grieved loss knows firsthand that suffering and grief is isolating. As common as the experience of, of suffering is, everyone's experience of suffering is unique. And when you hear stories of, and stories after stories of people's sufferings, no two experiences of suffering are exactly the same. And no two grieving people grieve the same way or grieve on the same timetable. In fact, the philosopher Nicholas Walter Storff had a son who passed away at the age of 25. And in his book, Lament for a Son, he even writes that shared grief isolates sharers from each other. He writes that, I may find it strange that you should be tearful today, but dry-eyed yesterday when my, uh, my tears were yesterday. But my sorrow is not your sorrow. And this is what he says. He says, the dynamics of each person's sorrow must be allowed to work themselves out without judgment. Anyone who has suffered often tell themselves that no one else will be able to understand what they're going through. And this sense of isolation not only and the sense of isolation only compounds when others leave the sufferer alone. But it's for this isolating reason that Job's three friends correctly discerned that what Job needed wasn't explanations, but their presence. The eventual failure of Job's three friends wasn't that they gave Job their presence, 
but that the duration of their presence was cut short by their words and explanations. And this tells us something about suffering. Grief, feeling unwell, sadness aren't something to be explained away with answers and explanations. To explain or answer people's grief and sadness dismisses and minimizes the person's grief. It is to believe that grief and sadness are a problem to be fixed, an enemy. But grief, feeling unwell, sadness is not the enemy. I think one of the reasons why we try to give answers to people's griefs and sufferings is because we genuinely want people to feel better. But the problem is that that short-circuits the necessary process of grief. In fact, for others of you, if you've ever tried helping people who suffer, if you've ever taken the role of comforter in a friend's life, then you'll know how often it has exposed you and made you uncomfortable. Not knowing how to help others, or the fear of not being helpful to others, puts us in uncomfortable territory, does it not? We want to feel like we're in control when we help others. We feel like we want our words to actually mean something, to be helpful to others. And it is in this uncomfortable position is the temptation that we seek to drag sufferers out of, not because of its uncomfortability for sufferers, but because it's uncomfortable for us. In fact, Diane Langberg, a Christian psychologist with 45 years of experience working with trauma victims, says that one of the reasons we so often criticize another person's process or rush them along in their suffering is because we have not yet accepted the reality, the finality of trauma, endings, or death ourselves. And because we, and because we haven't accepted it for ourselves, we want to make it a, less of a threat to minimize it and so end up minimizing the griever's loss. What if it's necessary to grieve and to be sad? Have you ever considered that? Pain may persuade us to believe that grief and sadness are evil. I mean, if you think about it, no one likes feeling sad or feeling grieved all the time. It sucks. Grief is work. It takes tremendous energy and is often exhausting. Therefore, we assume that just because it makes us uncomfortable that grief and sadness are bad, but they're not. Because you cannot heal from grief by avoiding grief. Grief and sadness are not evil. It is a response to the evil of our world, a response to the shadow of death. In fact, grief, sadness, and even anger is an appropriate biblical response to the fallenness of the world around us in our relationships and in, our, and in us in our bodies. We should feel grieved and saddened when we experience pain, unwanted desires, dysphoria in our bodies. We should feel grieved and saddened when others experience loss, when we see the destructive patterns of sin working itself out in the lives of others. We should be grieved when we hear a, parent, a friend's parents getting divorced, when friends contemplate suicide, when friends participate and engage in blatant sin. We should feel saddened and grieved by that. That's an appropriate response to human sin and suffering. We should be saddened when sin, not Jesus, is a delight to other people. We should grieve when things aren't the way that it's supposed to be. And it's for this reason, as Christians, as as a community of comforters, we should never believe that grieving should be short 
or even unnecessary if only we had enough faith in God. That sentiment is not only unloving, it is actually, in fact, anti-Christ. Grief and sadness play a vital role in authentic Christianity. It is possible to believe that you are deeply loved by God, to actually be deeply loved by God, to deeply love God, while still feeling grief and sadness in your life. Those aren't contradictions. It's just the reality of living in a broken world. In fact, as the man of sorrows himself, Jesus calls us to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. We know this. Jesus calls us not to admonish others in their sufferings, to condemn their grieving, to hurry sufferers along in their sadness. In fact, contrary to that, as the man of sorrows himself, he calls us to enter into it just as he did. He calls us to join with them in their grieving and weeping, not to make, a, not to make them like us. And if you think about it, the entire movement of the incarnation of God the Son is that He came to be with us. He met us where we were, not where He is. Jesus never looks at you oddly and says to you, I just don't get your pain and suffering. I could never understand why you would think this way or why you haven't moved on yet. It's been half a year and you're still sad? Eugene, Peterson, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, on the contrary, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through, weak, through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. He knows the frustration of, of days that don't go well at school or the gloominess of depression, or when your mind is falling apart, or when you continue to struggle, or the uncertainty generated by pandemics and Delta variants. He especially knows the challenge of broken relationships, tattered and bruised by retaliation, antagonism, blame shifting. And he understands firsthand how you are tempted to lash out, to self-medicate, to run away, to ignore the pain, to distract yourself, to give up, Jesus was tempted in every way. He experienced it all, all but the sin. And this is the Savior we need, the Savior we have, and the Savior we follow and imitate. And so let me ask you, does your care characterize this Savior? Presence is a ministry. In fact, the word ministry simply just means service. In other words, presence is a service to the hurting, the broken, and the suffering. Therefore, the length of time someone grieves is determined not by you or by how long you can stand to be sad, but by the sufferer himself or herself. The work and service of being a comforting presence is to be with the person where they are, not to drag them out to where you are more comfortable. You take your cue from them. They don't take your cue from you. The grieving person sets the pace. The sufferer tells us what they think and feel. We don't teach. We listen. In other words, the ministry of comfort and presence is not the ministry of explanation. We can't answer the questions that always arise, nor should we try to. The whole point of Job is that from a human perspective, we don't know the purpose of why. 
to try to answer turns us into Job's friends later on. In fact, at the end of the book of Job, God was angry. God will, will be angry with Job's so-called comforters because in their attempt to explain and to answer, they misrepresent God to the person suffering. And so we honor the sufferer by being what Jesus is to us. Our great, empathetic high priest who entered into our experience of pain and suffering. He knew it inside and out. He's, he, was with, he is with us, patiently walking us through the valley of darkness and out of it. Now, I know for some of you, this may sound troubling. Because from what it sounds like, the kind of comfort that I'm advocating for here is an, is an empathy that suspends any sort of moral judgment. A while ago, there was a, um, a, controver- a controversial video and a few articles on empathy being described as a sin. And if you can believe it or not, yes, there was an article describing empathy as a sin, as if Christianity could not fracture even further. I'm, I'm sure almost none of you know what I'm talking about because only a small pocket of evangelicalism was, was talking about it. You can look it up later. And the pastor described empathy as a sin because, it sets, because he thinks that empathy sets aside all judgment of right and wrong. But I think that it is a misunderstanding of what empathy is. Empathy is not opposed to the truth. Empathy is not opposed to justice. Empathy is simply opposed to cruelty. For example, when people are hospitalized for COVID-19 because they didn't wear a mask or because they didn't get vaccinated, what is the appropriate response? I hope coming from your mouth, it isn't, well, they should have gotten vaccinated. They just, they got what they deserved. As technically correct as that that response probably is, it's a cruel response. It's an unloving response. It's something that we would never tell people in the moment as they're furiously breathing through oxygen masks, clinging for their dear lives. Empathy does not mean that we suspend any moral judgment on the actions or what led them to their suffering, but it means that the moral judgment isn't appropriate to tell right now. It doesn't mean that we don't correct them, but it means that correction isn't what is immediately appropriate. It means we suspend any unsolicited advice or counsel. Empathy calls us to another path instead. I was watching a discussion between uh, Russell Moore and Beth Moore, who are unrelated despite sharing the same last name. And some of you probably know who these individuals are. They're they're probably the most two prominent, uh, two most prominent Southern Baptists to lead the Southern Baptist denomination. And they've been subjected to harsh criticism and cruelty for a variety of reasons. You can look look up those reasons later on. This discussion that they had between each other with one another, if, if you happen to listen to this uh, conversation, it was free of bitterness, anger on their part, despite the suffering that they had received from the critique and, and cruelty of others. And, and, and someone from the audience asked a question that I think many had wondered in their heads. They asked, how do we have difficult conversations with a person we believe has dangerous ideas? Let me repeat that. How do we have difficult conversations with a person we believe has dangerous ideas? And I think we've encountered individuals like that in our own midst, in our our relationships. And I think that's that's a particularly relevant question, no matter where one sides on the political or social spectrum. And Russell Moore, who was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, responded by saying something surprising. He said empathy. He said before the talk, before talking with this person, rehearse the conversation with a friend. 
except play the role of the person you believe is wrong. Do your best to inhabit their perspective and advocate their idea. But notice what that doesn't mean. It doesn't require rationalizing or excusing ideas and acts that are truly wrong. Jesus does not rationalize or excuse sin. Even if a person's own misery was a result of their own bad choices, even if we were able to trace the connection between their sin and their consequences, it's still possible to validate their feelings, to sit in sorrow with them while still disagreeing with them. That is something that I think Christians have lost today. Empathy does not mean that we should never correct. No one suffered perfectly without lashing out at others, rejecting, without rejecting God, without sin, except Jesus himself. I mean, have you ever perfectly suffered without complaining, grumbling, frustration? I mean, I complain when I have to blow my nose. I question God when, I, when my toe hits the leg of a table. So of course there's a place for correction and speaking the truth, but when someone suffers and grieves, correction and truth-telling is not the appropriate time and context for that. Because empathy ultimately does not preach. It participates. While never excusing sin, it shares in and seeks to, under, seeks to understand the worldview of even our worst opponents and the people that we disagree with. It seeks to understand the experiences of the griever and the sufferer. Empathy, like I mentioned, is not opposed to the truth. It is simply opposed to cruelty. A couple of days ago in my devotions, I was reading through Mark's gospel, where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees' interpretation of the Sabbath was that you literally couldn't lift a finger on the Sabbath because that counted as work. And according to rabbinic interpretation, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And just so you know, their interpretation was wrong. And so Jesus asks the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And Mark says that they were silent. I mean, the Pharisees knew the answer. And Mark records that Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. It is the only time anywhere in the Gospels where we see Jesus grieved. When Jesus looks at human sin in the face of human suffering, he is grieved. Jesus is grieved when people would rather be cruel for the sake of their perceived correctness. Empathy, like I've mentioned, is not opposed to the truth. It is simply opposed to human cruelty. And as we know, Jesus is both truth and love. I mean, the fact that Jesus comes into our world is demonstrative proof that our world is not okay. The fact that Jesus meets us is proof that we are not okay, that we need rescue, that we need deliverance, that we need salvation, period. That's the truth. But love is also the reason why He comes. In love, in the incarnation, God comes in the person of Jesus. He comes into a world of suffering caused by sin. He is grieved by the sin and suffering around us. He is moved by it. And, he's so, and, he, and so he comes to bear both. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. 
And God has laid upon him the, the iniquity of us all. That means that we will never encounter any sin or suffering, whether our own or another's, that Jesus has not carried. Jesus has paid for the penalty of our sin and borne the experience of our suffering. And because of Jesus, this means that we can grieve not as those without hope, but as those with hope. When John the Apostle describes the new heavens and new earth, he says that it will be a place where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He knows you have cried. Jesus welcomes the tears in order to wipe them away. In fact, it implies that the new heavens and new earth will be a place that we will enter into crying. And our God will stoop down to smooth away the water tracks down your face. And by wiping your tears away, He shows you what to do for others. Is there, more, is there a more intimate picture of what people do for each other when we grieve? There is little that we can do for others when they cry. I mean, if you've ever seen someone cry, even if we can fix what is broken, we, we can't remove the pain of the breaking, but we can embrace them and wipe away the tears. Because this is what Jesus does for us. May we do it for others. This is the ministry of presence. And it brings us finally to our second and final point. We must learn the ministry of silence. Take a look finally at verse 13. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Pastor Christopher Ash, who also comments on this passage, he writes that to refuse to speak a word to a sufferer for seven days and seven nights is eerie and not comforting. But I think he reads a bit too much into the words no one spoke and assumes that they refused to speak. He thinks that the silence isn't a good thing, but a bad thing. But the theologian Ellen Davis disagrees. She writes that those seven days of silence are surely one of the most influential acts of pastoral care ever performed. And I think I agree with her. This doesn't diminish the importance of God's words or our words. The opening pages of our Bibles begins with God speaking and the universe is spoken into existence. Words are powerful. Through it, the world is created. The gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and by it, God raises the dead to life. Words are important, obviously. Our church, if you haven't noticed, places a huge, I would think maybe perhaps an overemphasis on teaching. If you've noticed, every fellowship group has a teaching ministry that uses words. Pastor Kim squeezes 8,000 words of sermon material into a short span of 50 minutes. The reason people go to counseling at our church is so that they can receive helpful and wise words. We are called to help others with our words. But... The greatest moment of Job's help, I'm sorry, the greatest moment of Job's friends and Job's greatest moment of need isn't when they speak, but when they don't speak. The greatest moment of their care isn't what, hap- isn't what happens after verse 13 in their multitude of speeches, words, and explanations. Their greatest moment is here when their mouths are closed and when they sit with Job in silence. Job's friends will show their true colors immediately after verse 13. They will talk as if they are experts when they're really just idiots. 
and their speeches will be shut down by God in the end. But even the biggest fools can be considered wise. How? Well, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28, and other Proverbs say that even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I mean, that's not a compliment. I mean, that's saying you are smart when you shut your mouth. The height of their wisdom is here and only here when they sit with Job in silence. Their silence reveals that there is a time when silence is better than speech. The folly of Job's friends happens when they open their mouths to say things that were technically true, but were wrongly applied, poorly timed, and unnecessarily said. And I think our culture doesn't really help us cultivate the habit and virtue of silence. In fact, social media certainly doesn't. Everything that someone says almost demands a reaction and a response. I mean, every time something happens in the media, people always ask me, oh, Eric, what do you think about this? I'm like, Let me think about it. Everything that someone says almost demands a reaction and response. I mean, if you have an, an Apple device, you can react with an emoji to, to anything someone says. I mean, it's, it's as if our devices prime us for an instant reaction. Literary scholar Alan Jacobs writes that silence is not a permanent silence, but a refusal to speak at the frantic pace set by social media. You see, the problem for many of us isn't shutting up, but constantly speaking. We just have a lot to say, or we're expected to speak. But there are times when, particularly in suffering, when suffering is so great in our lives and especially in the lives of others that there is nothing that we could possibly say except to say, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. And that's okay to say that. And to say nothing more. This doesn't mean that we, that we don't speak the truth. It simply means to not be afraid of silence and to even consider it as a better alternative to speaking. Your silence presence for these individuals would mean so much more than someone with the most careful of words. Because not even the, the best of words can take pain away. Not even the most careful, theologically astute, or the wisest of words can explain why this thing happened to you or why this thing happened to your friend. 10,000 human words cannot explain the question of why God would do something like this. Not even Johnny, Eric, and Tata and the other 10,000 other attempted human solutions can answer the unsolvable mystery of suffering and evil. Theologians, philosophers have tried to answer it. They've all failed. Where we ought to look to in the face of tragedy, suffering, and grief is Jesus Christ, the answer to human suffering. In verse 13, where Job's friends are simply struck silent while looking upon the unrecognizable condition of their friend Job. It was the, their only shining hour, and maybe it will be yours too. The theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas retells the story of a friend whose mother had just committed suicide. And this is what he says. As often as I have reflected on what happened in that short space of time, I have also remembered how Inept I was in helping Bob. I didn't know what could or should be said. 
I did not know how to help him start sorting out such a horrible event so that he could go on. All I could do was be present, but time has helped me to realize that this is all he wanted. Namely, my presence for as inept as I was. My willingness to be present was a sign that this was not an event so horrible that it drew us away from other human contact. Life could go on. I now think that at that time, God granted me that marvelous privilege of being a presence in the face of profound pain and suffering, even when I did not appreciate the significance of being present. This isn't some high schooler saying this. I mean, this is a theology and ethics professor from Duke saying that he didn't know what he was doing and reflected that giving a hurting person your presence is far better than knowing what to say. Silence literally means that we don't have the answers. It is to remember that we are not God. It is our inability to rescue others from human misery symbolized through our silence that takes us directly to the, great, to the greater ministry of salvation in Jesus. Our, sim- our silence simply demonstrates that we are not the saviors of others. That there's only one great high priest and that is, that is not us. It is Jesus. Again, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Silence reminds us that there is a a limit to our knowledge, a limit to our speech, a limit to our abilities, a limit to our desires to control and tame the response and sufferings of others. Nothing that we say can fix anything. And that's the point. The sufferings and griefs of others aren't puzzles to be solved. Sufferers and grievers are ultimately people. And we can't fix people. But we can be there for them in our silent presence. Ellen Davis writes again that cultivating the habit of silence should be seen as one of the special responsibilities of Christian community. Cultivating the habit of silence should be seen as one of the special responsibilities of the Christian community. And by God's grace, I've seen this habit worked out and modeled by my friend, Chris. If you'll remember from one of our uh, earlier messages in Job, you'll remember how my dad had passed away right at the end of my senior year in high school. You might be wondering how I was able to get through the passing of a parent at such a young age. Well, truth be told, I still haven't gotten through it. Death isn't really something that you get over. But what made the suffering bearable was when a youth leader chose to bear it with me. And his name was Chris. And he was one of my groomsmen when Megan and I got married. At the time, I didn't really know Chris, and Chris didn't really know me. I just knew that he served as a, as a leader in the youth ministry, and he knew that I was one of those youth, one of those youth kids who, who left halfway during youth group to party with a bunch of their high school friends. Chris and I got to know each other better when we both, along with a few others in the youth ministry, went on a mission trip together. We talked, shared stories, and got close during the mission trip. It was right when I came back from the mission trip that I found out my dad was hospitalized. A week later, my dad would pass away, but during that week, Chris somehow knew and visited me and my family every day at the hospital. He took an hour out of his lunch break 
every day to visit our family. And even after my dad's passing, he would invite me over to his house with a few other church friends every single day until I left for college. I literally saw Chris just two weeks ago over the weekend for Josh Scott's wedding. Chris was a, if you didn't know Josh Scott, I just happened to see him. <laughs> Chris was a man of few words. He was a quiet man. He didn't say much. He might, Chris himself might say that perhaps that was one of his weaknesses, that he didn't really say much, but I would actually say that that was one of his strengths. I knew that he cared because he was there. If Chris, if, if Chris actually did say something, I'm pretty sure he did. I don't even remember. But what I remember most wasn't the amount of words that he had said. It was that he was simply there. It was the simple, powerful reminder that I wasn't alone. And God revealed his particular warmth and kindness through an unassuming guy named Chris, who was simply and patiently there. This is how we can be there for others. Through the ministry of presence and the ministry of silence. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for our, our youth that they would be people who are characterized by a compassion for other people, uh, that they would be marked by a sort of characteristic that they are grieved and saddened by the, the sufferings and the loss of others. I pray that what is usually true for high schoolers would be uncharacteristically true of high schoolers in that they would not be apathetic to the needs of others. But God, I pray that through these three simple verses that they would learn the ministry of being for others, of being with others, that they don't have to have the pressure to say anything fancy or deep or really anything at all. I pray that more than anything else that they would simply be faithful friends who are with their hurting friends in the joys but also in the sorrows. And in so doing, I pray that these hurting friends, through the care of our faithful students here, would come to see the generosity and the kindness and the care and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. I pray that that would be the distinct focus of what others see in us, that we would in fact become invisible in such a way that it it really, when people look at us, they see Jesus. And that is my hope and that is my prayer for these high schoolers and even for these staff as well. We pray that you would help us to be people who, more than anything else, look like Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus, who modeled it so well by dying for us, going to the cross for us, suffering for us, knowing everything, yet without sin. Thank you that we have a great high priest who lived it, loved us, gave himself up for us. Father, thank you for Jesus. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.